What's going on, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Authors on the Podcast Talking Books. I'm your host, David Walters, as always. Um, so yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting getting back into uh, the rhythm of doing some podcast episodes here, and today I am so excited to have uh, Michelle Seguera with me. Uh, so Michelle writes as both Michelle Seguera and Michelle West, and she also is published as Michelle Seguera West, so no no confusion there. <laughs> uh, she lives in Toronto with her long-suffering husband and her two children, and to her regret, has no dogs. That's sad. It's very sad. Reading is one of her lifelong passions, and she's sometimes paid for her opinions about what she's read by the venerable magazine of fantasy and science fiction. And no matter how many bookshelves she buys, there is never enough shelf space, ever. And I can completely agree with that. But uh, Michelle, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Three quarters of my family is is fully vaccinated. I'm the holdout. I'm on Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> hey, well, I mean, it's not not too far away. Well, when we've done it, I will give up on haunting vaccine hunters for <laughs> pop up clinics and information. They are the best source, at least for Canada, mm -hmm. for clinic locations. And in fact, the pharmacies and the clinics frequently will tweet changing information on the ground to vaccine hunters. And then vaccine hunters gets the word out. Really? Yep. That's, that's interesting. <laughs> you know, what you thought you'd be asking, right? Right. Yeah. You know, it, it's interesting because, you know, here in, here in Alabama, it's just like uh, we have like a little, it's like alvaccine.gov or something. And it, automatically like takes you to a website you type in your zip code and it's like hey here's all the places within 25 miles you can get a vaccine and you know being in alabama and being kind of you know one of the last place states which we always like to call it, um you know there's like 20 times a day you can just go get one five minutes down the road it's kind of crazy yeah. seeing the difference yeah. between you know us in alabama the rest of the country and then what it looks like for you guys up in toronto you know, well, for us at the moment, it, we still haven't reached a point where people don't want vaccines. Mm. So people are still getting first shots. Um, it's been sort of interesting because it's a large city. So you have a bunch of different immigrant populations or places where the people or the older parents or the parents don't speak very good English. Mm. So they aren't hooked into provincial vaccination sites or other things and they and they require some help navigating the system um and especially uh, the people who are doing pop-up clinics some of them are very smart so they found apartment buildings they'll find kids in school um, or high school students and they'll kind of ask them to go with them so they can explain why they're there and part of the successful first shot is reaching out in that way. Mm -hmm. It can be quite intimidating. And even with my parents who were born and raised here, they sometimes find the web stuff confusing mm -hmm. and everything moves so quickly compared to the speed it used to move because information just keeps coming in. Right. So we help out with our parents who perfectly competent in English and who do send email or other things, but who still find many things about the internet confusing. Right. And since so much is done by the internet, it, if you're not actually careful, you're not very deliberate in your outreach, you're going to miss a bunch of people. Mm -hmm. Hey, I'm, I'm with them there. I, I'm still confused by a lot of things on the internet too. So <laughs> there's just so much uh, always going on. I know. <laughs> Sometimes for me, it's confusion followed by rage. Right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, um, kind of want to start off. Uh, just want to ask you. You know, tell me, tell me about yourself. Tell me how you got into writing. Uh, any, uh, you know, writers that you read a lot growing up, or because um, I'm assuming based on your your bio that you that you read a lot. So um, that could be a, probably a pretty easy question to uh, to dive into. <laughs> Yes, but you're talking to a reader, so you're going to have to actually push the stop button at some point. <laughs> I did actually. I was born in um, what is now the city of Toronto, but it was at the time North York, Burwood, North York. So I haven't really moved very far from home. I don't have an incredibly interesting 
um, series of jobs or life experience, I always read. I'm the oldest of four children, spaced five years apart from me to the youngest. But my mom really wanted us to read if she could encourage it. So the only time people were told, oh, don't bother Michelle, she is reading, <laughs> was in fact when I was a young child and had a book in my hand. Other than that, it was three younger siblings. So maybe reading was self-defense, I doubt it. But I loved reading and I loved novels and I loved fantasy as a, as a small child. So I loved reading mythology books and fairy tale books. And um, I think the big, big book that I read forever and ever. Once I, read, I think I read it 12 times the first year that I read it, and then read it at least once a year until I had kids, was in fact The Lord of the Rings. Just, I know that it is, mm, it is not the go-to for people who are younger than me, and that is perfectly fine. But it had a huge impact on me and I think it's possibly the use of mythic, the creation of language, the sense of history, but also the sense of friendship, a camaraderie mm -hmm. that I just really, really loved. And it's not the descriptions of trees or grass, because I admit my 12-year-old self would skip all of those. <laughs> yeah, it's a tree. Yeah, yeah, it's grass. But the character interactions when they're all actually focused on kind of a do or die situation. I would say that's probably the biggest fantasy influence or, hmm, how can I say this? Things that you love, things that you take in become some sort of part of your interior landscape, your imagination. Some of those things he will come back to 15 years later and think, oh my God, was I drunk? Oh no, I was too young to drink then. <laughs> uh, which is sad. We call that the suck fairy, or we used to say the suck fairy had visited. But regardless, there was something in those books that spoke to me. And so I retained the parts, obviously, that spoke to me and kind of glossed over the things that were incredibly horrifying garbage. I'm looking at you, Amy Blyden. Um, <laughs> But I would say that I was constantly reading. I loved the Narnia books, for instance. And oh my God, the arguments. The minute I reached high school, you mentioned Narnia and it caused an argument. <laughs> because um, many people felt that it was just religious propaganda. Mm -hmm. My general response as a not terribly religious person was, okay, here's my deal. If I actually believed that God was like Aslan, then I'd be Christian too. Next. But I don't, that's not why I read those books. I mean, I read those books as portal fantasies mm -hmm. as a kid. The, the larger religious stuff did not touch me because in some ways when you're younger, you read to see yourself. Now, I'm Japanese-Canadian, but I'm not terribly visual to begin with. So when I say see yourself in something, for me, only Michelle, other people have different experiences. What I was looking for were people who thought the way I thought. People who were motivated by things I felt would motivate me. It, the rest of it kind of didn't matter. The gender kind of didn't matter. The, the, it just didn't to my reader self. As I got older, I realized that not all people do this. Like somebody actually said, another writer who I quite respect, said, but when you were reading those things, didn't you feel weird because the characters you identified with were male? And I said, um, no. And she said, but why? And I said, well, because, um, maybe we'll not actually repeat what I said, because <laughs> to me it might be a little bit off color, but because nothing physically uh, was required of them that defined them as male. Mm. I didn't see why I couldn't do what they were doing. Right. So the idea that they had to be specifically ascribed just didn't even occur to me as a reader. Can I identify with these signs? And there were some female characters I quite identified with as well, but it had to be that sort of similarity or overlap 
of viewpoint. That was the kind of thing that was people like me for Michelle as a child. My science fiction influences, although I have written very little science fiction, I've written a couple, they tend to be depressing. Um, and they're all short stories. Uh, was actually Le Guin. There were three. It was Le Guin and Frank Herbert's Dune, and then The Female Man for other reasons. Um, and those three books I read at around the same time. I quite loved Dune, uh, but I read it because all of my friends were reading it. Mm -hmm. You know, Fear is the Mind Killer. People could just quote large parts of it. Um, so the one that really, really, really made a huge difference was Left Hand of Darkness. Because Left Hand of Darkness, first of all, is an excellent, brilliant writer. And I realized that as I got older, at 15, I, of course, I thought anything I love was brilliant. Um, but there was a moment in that book, and that is a book about essentially hermaphroditic, but completely gender neutral people who go go into a specific sexual gender when they're in heat. That's Karen. There was a character I absolutely hated. <laughs> hated him. And the shock I personally felt when that character went into the heat and became female made me stop. And I thought, oh, and this was important. Oh, okay. I get it. It's not just men that are sexist. I have this too. I had associated absolutely every uh, disgusting trait as something male. And that's why I had expected that identity to go into the sexual male brain hmm. and didn't. So it, I, it really kind of blew the top of my brain off at that time. I was 15 and it really made me start to assess and look at my own interactions and my own reactions in a much more objective way. That was kind of the start of it. So I don't know if that kind of answers your general question or if you <laughs> kind of Yeah, no, it does. It does. Um so so when would you say that you started writing and then when did you start writing seriously? I started writing <laughs> writing books when I was six years old. <laughs> six years old and there's me. And at six, I did not understand printing presses or publication. I was always extremely depressed because nothing I did looked like a real book. Mm. But I still tried. And then on and off, I would write. I mean, I think my first novel, if you can call it a novel, is actually what would have been fanfic if I realized that anybody else was doing this sort of thing. But it was just me, the old select typewriter, with uh, my pieces of paper where I'd be right out to the margins because, you know, paper. <laughs> just write these complicated, long, and thank God never to be seen by any other eyes pieces. Um, it wasn't in, let me see, when I was 16, uh, in English, I started, I think what I would call my first baby steps at things that did not suck. And of course, baby steps at things that did suck completely. But I went to, um, it was a workshop, grade 13, which doesn't exist anymore. So the top year, English course. Um, the English teachers had to choose students or recommend students. And you could send two per school in North York. So I was one of them. And that one actually made a big difference to me as well. Because it was the first time I had been in a workshop environment. And I will tell you right now <laughs> that there were no clearing rules. There were no other rules. But I think we all understood because of our teacher that we were supposed to be writing about things that had happened or happened to us, which I think was garbage. I wrote science fiction. He hated it. Um, <laughs> that because you knew, well, he hated it, but nobody else did. Like people would just say, David, shut up. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it was a, a very interesting teacher. Um, but he 
but we understood that everybody there then was was writing about things that they experienced and some of it's quite horrific mm -hmm. so you understand before you start that you are doing two things one is critiquing the writing but the other is critiquing it in a way that can keep it as far from the personal as possible and everybody learned this and i'll tell you the worst pieces were ones where nobody said anything because you and again this was not demanded of us but in general you wanted to say something positive about a piece and if you could not think of anything good to say then you had to consider your words with care mm. and i don't know it won't surprise anybody who actually knows me if i say this but generally speaking the first person to break silence was me <laughs> But it's, I really think the write about what you know thing in this particular case was not useful because you were too, it's too personal. Mm -hmm. So it's hard for you to see how to convey the importance of grief or loss when it just, it's consumed everything. So to you, everything you're doing somehow conveys it but to readers who don't know, it won't. So you're having to say this to people who are, they were standing possibly an entire year trying to say right about their father's death. And the anger they felt when all the rest of life moves on. And I get that. And we all understood that, that the piece didn't convey it. But I will say that although we spent the entire workshop writing about that, at the end of the year, the last workshop thing, this piece was fabulous. It was so good it's like he had kind of internalized so many different things from himself as a reader and from the things that people said about what they could or could not get from this and he did he, did, he started with cameras mm. and then kind of moved the metaphor and it was just spectacular but it was all year so that was actually very useful and then um, we had to write poetry and i did have some poetry published um, in university. But at that point in time, I'm in my 20s and I'm thinking, okay, I'll do something. <laughs> and I don't actually think I would make a good academic. I have great opinions for certain things. I can absolutely justify them, but I don't, I'm not sure I would enjoy it. And you can't make a living writing poetry if you're not an academic. Right. Because, in fact, the academics use poetry. It's like scientific papers, right? The publishing of that poetry is important to the academic career. So it becomes entwined with that. But you can't make a living writing poetry. Well, Caroline Duffy, maybe, if you become poet laureate. Um, sorry. <laughs> I'm spinning in circles with that one. But the truth is, <laughs> it's OK. Poetry is the art of speaking a language of metaphor that people who have the experience you were trying to encapsulate will instantly understand. It isn't a metaphor, say, that I use, but it is a metaphor I absolutely recognize as a reader. So you are speaking to people um, of an experience that is shared. For me, novels or fiction are the exact opposite. A novel takes a reader on a journey so that when you get to the end, the reader has the reaction that you had. So they have the emotional response that you had when you were conceiving of the end. It's a different form of communication. Right. So then I started writing. And I think I started writing um, when I was 26. Well, my first book was rejected, um, but uh, the editor in question basically rejected it with a, we would love to see anything else you ever write. And this doesn't work for whatever reasons. It was a long couple of paragraphs. Now, because I was working with Tanya Huff at the time, I'm looking at these, okay, I'll just start something else. I'll drop that second book I'm writing and I'll, I'll start something else. And Tanya said, no, you will not. And I said, well, what do you mean? She said, okay, so that, that's not actually rejection. I said, it is a rejection if you look at it. Hi, look at this line. She said, yeah, no. 
that that is not actually what it means. And I said, well, what does it mean? She said, call her. I said, I'm not calling her. <laughs> you know, professional, whatever. And she said, you have to talk to her. And so that whole conversation, it's a gentleman's conversation from a bygone era, right? Mm -hmm. The editor, who is not going to commit to publishing this book as it is, is basically telling you what is wrong with your book or why it doesn't work for her. But she, had, she was so incredibly careful about it because she does not feel that unless she's committed to buying it, she has any right to demand revisions. Um, and so, you know, it's just some stupid conversation at the end of it. And it was helpful. I shouldn't say stupid, but, you know, there was like a fish out of water. Um, I said, okay, but if I fix these things, do you want to see this again? She said, yes, absolutely. So I said that at the beginning. I think I actually said that because, by the way, at the time, talking to New York was 56 cents a minute. Mm. <laughs> so it wasn't, there was no cheap long distance. And then I went away and I revised it and she actually said, okay, we'll pass it on to Lester Del Rey. Lester Del Rey rejected it with a four page inventive filled letter that actually I is very close to my heart. I still adore it. Because <laughs> everybody thought I would be well, everyone thought I'd be really upset. So I'm having people saying, like Lester can be a little bit tough, and I read this, and what really pissed them off was that there was an eighty page flashback. Mm. And he said, only incompetent morons, essentially, put an 80-page crucial flashback. I thought, oh, God, fine, fine. But I said, well, okay, that's easy. I'll just take that flashback and make it the book. Because his point was this should have been the first book. Mm -hmm. I said, it's going to depress people. Like, it's got a depressing ending. <laughs> so... Uh, that that book became my first novel because he loved that book. He said, "Okay, you just you you have filled out everything. You've, you've done everything." Everybody else breathed a sigh of relief, and then they bought, um, I think, the first two books. So it was that one, and then book that I'd sent, which was no longer book one, and so there was some revision for book two, but that became. The sec my first written book became my second published novel. And then there was three and four. Um, and then I wrote Hunter's Oath. And I sent it to Dawn eventually. And um, somebody whose name I will not say had totally fluffed the deadline. So they had this one slot and I had a finished book. So that became the book and then hunter's death <laughs> and everything else followed that's it when, then, it, then it's just well, been just a streamline of books <laughs> well the cast in shadow so the chronicles of Elantra, i started later and one of the things that was said very commonly about the west novels which i didn't quite understand at the time was that they're very dense which means you have to read all the words. Now, I said to a friend of mine, well, okay, but like, when you say that you have to read all the words, like, why am I even writing them? No one's reading them. Mm -hmm. And her point was, people skim. She said, let's take this book. And she picked up a book. Again, I will not mention it by title. She said, if you read, do it, Michelle. Read every fifth page. And then tell me what the book is about. And I said, well, that's, that's ridiculous. But in fact, she was not wrong. So somehow, like, I don't get it. I just do not get this. What I was doing um, was inaccessible to a lot of people. Hmm. Somebody I know quite well came into the store because he was reading Broken Crown, and he asked two questions. One, he said, is the Calicar based on Tanya Huff? And I said, yes. And you were the first person to have ever asked that question because she certainly didn't. And he laughed. And then he said, and second, this book makes me feel stupid. <laughs> and he said, it's not the book's fault. But then I then I said, you are, he said, okay, I'm standing in a streetcar, stop, I read the book, I close the book, I get on the streetcar, I open it again, I start reading, I'm totally lost. I said, you skipped a paragraph. Didn't you? And actually, that's what he was doing, right? He's picking it up, he, he has a bookmark, he opens it up, but he opens it up and he starts reading down. 
And so that paragraph that he skipped uh, provides context. Or So I understood that somehow um, my desperate fear of being way too obvious about things was working counter to me. I've been told that a lot, though, <clears throat> by the editors at the time. My Delray editor said, look, how about this? You overwrite everything, and I'll tell you if it's too much. So she was a little bit frustrated. <laughs> she won this she all the expansions where this is not clear, this is not clear, this is not clear, or but I said this here. And so then I had to realize that, that things have page weight. Like it's been a process for me. Mm -hmm. Um my cast books were an attempt to write something that was more accessible and short. So I um chose a single viewpoint, which I had not done before. And then um, an easily relatable job, and then I started. Okay, these things are happening. I said, this is my fluff book. This is, and I actually, to Tanya, I said, this is my Tanya Huff book. And uh, she said, you realize that it's actually nothing like one of my books, right? And I said, no, that's a line in there you could have written. And she said, is it the one about lunch? And I said, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but she said, okay, it's not as bad as the other book. She said, I still have to read all the words, but I don't have to reread or I, I don't miss things in the same way. That it, it still, it requires concentration. She didn't hate, she didn't hate that it required concentration, but it was, as I said, yeah, well, fine. It was my attempt to write a Tanya Huff book, but frankly, you're not dead, so I can't channel you. She thought that was very funny. Uh, because, and because we've been friends for a long time, I knew she would think that was funny. It's not the type of thing you say to most authors, just let's up front. Can you die so I can channel you? It's just never going to go over well. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> so then I had the cast books and the cast books I think are more accessible. There's one thing that I never, ever got the hang of still to this day. Every successful fantasy, especially of any length, there are romances, right? There are relationships. There are people who are reading those books, like the Jordan books. Who's he going to end up with? All of the fantasy books have some element of that, some more than others. I can't grok it. I, I, I just can't quite figure out how that works on a visceral, realistic level. So... Always back to the any drawing attempts. board. <laughs> well, any attempts to do so have always ended with doom. Uh, so, because it just, I can't. And the worst thing is that type of relationship when it's kind of tapped in, it's added in, because it sticks out like a sore thumb. It doesn't feel organic. It doesn't feel like it actually grew out of the book. It's just bad. Mm -hmm. I think, okay. So I'm still trying to figure it out on the inside of my head. But short of that, I think that the cast novels are the ones that are the most accessible. And that's where we are, with the single exception of a trilogy called The Queen of the Dead, also written by Michelle Segarra, which I kind of wrote as a, a young adult, sort of paranormal, except there's no moments, because dead boyfriend at the start. And it did things that I'm actually semi-proud of, but many, many people found it too grim. Mm. And I said, I don't, I, why is it grim? Like I, <laughs> so this will tell you something about me. And they said, Michelle, you were dealing about death. I said, yes, we're dealing with death and grief and loss. But I mean, how is that grim? I'm not, I'm not murdering people. I'm not raping people in huge numbers. I'm not doing whatever. I, this is the type of thing that actually will happen in your life, except for the ghosts. And People do have to deal with it. So I, I never quite got that. Mm -hmm. But it's me. I gotcha. All right. So um, I know, you know, you wrote under Michelle West, uh, where you have a few series like House War, which is an eight book epic fantasy series. Another six book series called The Sun Sword and a two book series called Sacred Hunt. And you also wrote under Michelle Segarra West, where you had a four book series called the Sundered. And then 
goodness, now you've got <laughs> a 16-book series called The Chronicles of Elantra, and you've started another series, uh, which you uh, are currently uh, working on book two called uh, The uh, Wolves of Elantra. So tell me, how has your writing process changed since the beginning to now, or has it stayed the same? Have you decided to outline more or have you always been an outliner or do you just do you just pants at all okay <laughs> this is a lovely question i would be considered a pantser except that's not entirely descriptive mm. for the west novels and the west novels all take place in the same universe i did a lot of world building beforehand because I need to understand the general context of the characters. What was their society like? What, what were the attitudes they were raised with? How would that shape them going forward? Uh, did I have outlines for books? No. With the two hunter books, the ending, uh, no, but not actually, the, the, there's a lot of spoiler in it, but there's a particular scene that was the genesis of those books. And it was towards the end of the second book. But everything that I wrote up to that point, and I did start um, a few times here. No, what's this viewpoint? No, okay, what about this character? No, okay. Because you're writing around events. What is the best way to present an event? Um, everything kind of resonated with that ending. And that's sort of how I write. It is very fancy in a sense that I sit down, I know what the end is, and I start writing towards that end. I have a rough idea of what's going to happen next. And that rough idea is frequently knocked on its butt the minute I actually start. But the characters will necessarily uh, say things or do things that I hadn't anticipated because an outline for me is like a planning document and the book is where the heart is. But I'm not thinking when I write an outline, okay, this is who this character is and how this character is going to react in this very situation. So, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I have a rough idea and frequently the characters have different ideas and I generally follow the character because I write in a fairly tight third person viewpoint. Mm -hmm. um, I have tried outlining it kills the book for me hmm. it makes the book almost impossible to write now, the only novel I have ever written an outline for was Cast in Shadow I had to write the, the samples but 100 pages and then a synopsis of the whole book and okay that's fine my agent said, I don't know why you don't like doing this. He said, you write very good synopses. I mean, this is good. And I said, eh. And they did bond the first three novels. And then I had to write the first book. And it was, it was really difficult. Because I felt like the book was now submerged um, in this outline that the publisher had bought based on. Like, I felt like I couldn't really vary. That is not true. Now, let me just say, coming up for a minute, from my own writer perspective, that is not true. In most cases, publishers expect outlines to be imprecise, but it doesn't actually really matter because for me, it's a girdle. So the second book I wrote, um, I just wrote. Mm -hmm. And my editor called to ask about the proposal and the synopsis. And I said, is there anything that you need it for that you couldn't just use the whole book for? And she said, well, uh, no, I guess not. But you know, most people like to get paid because the, the payment was third on acceptance proposal, third on acceptance. Um, no, third on signing, third on the proposal, and then third on acceptance of finished book. And I said, yeah, not me. So I sent her the whole book. And that was Catherine Courtlight. And she read it in like two days and she phoned me and said, oh my God, I love this book. <laughs> I love this book. I mean, I must like the first one because I bought them, but I don't remember loving it like this one. And mm -hmm. I said, yeah, well, it's the outline. And she said, what do you mean? And I said, well, I'd started an outline here. Let me go back. This is what it would have been. She, there was a pause. And then she said, Michelle, this is so much better. I said, yes, that is my point. <laughs> 
And then she never asked for an outline again. Mm. Not ever. She just she just decided my process did not work well with it. It, it was very dampening. Um, so yes, I'm a cancer, but I generally have set goals and I generally have endings. And the end becomes the heart in some ways. Everything kind of spirals around the end in the book. So it's not like I am just starting with no idea at all. Mm -hmm. It's just that I don't know how I'm going to get there, but I trust that I will get there. <laughs> well, I know it sounds funny, but it, it, when people say they pants, like it, all the world building is not actually pantsing, but it's not the book. Right. So it's not on the page. Nobody is reading these terribly scribbly, sometimes whiny notes that I've written ever, I hope. Um, so it doesn't feel as restricted to me. It's providing structure or substructure for what can happen. So it's kind of half and half. Mm -hmm. When people say pants, they, they generally assume that you kind of just sit down and start writing off the top of your head and do whatever, and that that's not quite what I do. Mm. I gotcha. Um, but, yeah. go ahead. No, go ahead. No, you, you were gonna say, <laughs> has my writing changed? Does my process change? Yeah. And it is really hard to say. I sit down and I write. Uh, sometimes I think, oh my God, those are great words. And sometimes I think, why are there drunk monkeys in my house? But I, it, it, that sit down, write, is what I've always done. And I, I have to write starting at the beginning and going to the end. There are people I know who can write different pieces of the book and put it all together and have it feel organically like a book, but that doesn't work for me. Mm -hmm. If I choose a point to write, and I write the whole thing out, there's a very good chance that when I go back to write the book, the book will never reach that point. Unless I work it or twist it or break it in some fashion. So I work from page one to the end, but I still do that. Mm -hmm. And if something's not working, I'll throw it out um, for touch. And Grave. I started both books from page one four times. Touch was the worst because I had like 90,000 words and and I just, they weren't working for me. So I just wasn't going to go to the end. And it's one of the very few where I knew what the end was. And I kept starting the book over again because I realized we're not going to get there. We're not going to get there. The book is not going to go there. And it wasn't until I was my fourth iteration that I fully realized that in fact, the book was never going to go there because the character that had already been established and written about in the book, in the first book, would never make the decision that that ending required her to make. It was never going to happen. Mm. And then I threw that part out and just wrote the book. <laughs> Gave up on that end and thought, well, okay, let's just write. The end of the whole trilogy is the ending that I thought it would be. But the second book, oh, pardon me. And then, of course, the, the, the third book was a pain because it didn't start where it was supposed to start. So, okay, let's just accept that and go forward. Mm. But I don't do well with outlines because I'll have these kind of conflicts with them on the way. If I think this is what has to happen next, then I'll do that. And the reason I was so determined to do this after writing 30 books and I should know better is because I thought I finally had a three-act play. Almost any writer will talk to you, will tell you about the importance of a three-act play. Like first scene, second scene, third scene, and how they're structured. And that is the natural form of a trilogy. I've never known to do that. Uh, and so I thought, with these three books, I've had a three-act play. There's this, and then the second book ends here, and then the third book ends here. And I, and I had this moment of, I will finally be a grown-up writer, because writers always feel slightly neurotic or slightly incompetent mm. some of the time. If we always felt just incompetent, then maybe that would be more of a problem. But there are huge traps of doubt <clears throat> in every work. In fact, the one piece of advice, the only piece of advice that I have for aspiring writers is when you reach that part of your book where you suddenly realize this was a garbage idea, it was a stupid idea, it wasn't as brilliant as you thought, no one is ever going to like this, keep writing. Mm. If you can't, 
keep writing through that, the chance that you will ever finish something is almost zero. That's kind of the, the burden to bear. Maureen McHugh has a lovely graph about the st emotional states of a novel, which is quite, quite funny, but also true. <laughs> so you, know, you start thinking this is the best idea ever, it's brilliant, and it starts at the very high peak. And then it goes into the absolute zero of, it's the stupidest idea ever, it's going to end my career, no one will like it, people will think I'm a moron. And then it kind of creeps back up to a midway point as you keep going. But the ability to keep going is the thing that you need in order to actually finish the books and eventually get published. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk a little bit about your, your newest series, The Wolves of Elantra? Um, I know book one came out uh, last October and I know you're working on book two currently, but uh, can you tell us a little bit about that series and maybe how it ties in to your current series, your current 16 book series, Chronicles? Well, it's a 16 book series to me. It was intended to be like a mystery series, mm -hmm. right? So you don't have to read all the books in theory. You, it's like, it's episodic, but it does kind of advance a background story. It's not like, the Sun Sword is one six book long story. And that's not what the cast novels are, in theory, and that's not what I was trying to do. Uh, the Emperor's Wolves are about one character in the cast series and his early years. He was 25 when you first meet him in the first cast novel, and he is 18, I think 18, at the start of The Emperor's Wolves, and it shows his, I guess, <laughs> induction into the wolves as a force. Mm. The wolves, the swords, and the hawks are all three branches of the halls of law. And they are they were created by the eternal emperor, the dragon emperor, to police his city, the, the city in which his palace is. The wolves are his um, executioners. Sometimes they're called his assassins. Sometimes they're like bounty hunters, except they don't get the bounty. They are the people who are sent out to find, apprehend, bring back, and or kill people that the emperor has judged um, guilty. So technically not assassins, because technically he's the emperor and he's the head of everything, and it's the laws that he wrote. Mm -hmm. So Seven started life as a wolf. Kaelinne in the cast books is a hawk, and they're your investigative branch. They deal with murders and break-ins and petty crimes. The swords are your crowd control. They are your public face. They are your parade guard. But in times of emergencies, they're the people who are going to go into the streets and try to keep people calm and funneled into something that is not quite a mob. So he's a wolf. The wolf is the smallest division. And it's the most secret division, or the most private division of the Halls of Law. So it is about the wolves, a little bit more about the wolves, because the wolves are not well known to the hawks, and more about why Severn became a wolf, and why he never reached out to Kaelin after their long separation. Okay. So the first book is that, and the second book is Severn has an unusual weapon. Mm. Um, he's always had the unusual weapon in the cast book, and when I was thinking about writing a Severn story, it was either his joining the wolves or it was his weapon except it was supposed to be a novella, and when I got to chapter seven of the novella, I realized there's no way on earth this is going to be a novella. <laughs> so then I... You're laughing, but I send it to my publisher and say, would you guys have any interest in this? Thinking that they would probably say no. But they said yes. And so it is the start of Severin's time as a wolf. His first case is the first book. Well, he's still in theory on probation. <laughs> I just love that. What started out as a novella is now a series. <laughs> Well, it's because I could have gone, it, it was a charity prompt. I mm. said, you know, I could do a short story, but any, you know, one word of your choosing, and somebody chose seven. Mm. 
So I had two stories and I decided, mm, I think I'll go with this one because the, the weapons, there's, it gets more complicated for a variety of reasons. Let me just go with his joining the wolves. And then of course it was not short. Mm. So the next book was the other short story I could have written about that I had decided in my infinite wisdom probably would not be short. So maybe I'll just skip that one for now. And now they bought two books. So now I am writing the other not short story. <laughs> and I'm, I'm telling you, it's really not short. But I will say the one thing about the Severn book, um, as opposed to the Kalen books, is the Severn book, the, the Emperor's Wolves, actually has multiple viewpoints. And it's short for a multiple viewpoint book for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but the reason it has multiple viewpoints is, and these are the characters, right? Kaylin feels that she's not good with words, and possibly she's not good because she gets a little heated. But she's her interior, internal monologue, she's chatty on the inside of her head. She's very open. And that's her problem. Severin is not that character in any way, shape, or form. So I'm starting to write this book. And as I as was said many times in my household, Severin will not speak to me. He just he's, he won't speak. And it took a while to get to a point where if you will, where he was involved enough in the things that were going on, that that there was more severity point, but he is just much more difficult to, you just need to go with some other viewpoints because you can have something that is so close book, people probably won't even understand that he is just a very not chubby. I know you're laughing. But tonally, the books are similar to the cast books. It's just, oh my God, this one character. I actually quite like the character. Um, and I understand all of the choices he has made. But it's very difficult and it's very unusual for me to have a character. I demons, I have elves, and I have, you know, ghosts and undead and gods. And I don't think I've ever had. The character just be so closed book mm. in my life. <laughs> I, find, I always find it so interesting how authors talk about their characters and how you know they they speak to them. So it's it's so hard, you know, sometimes as a reader to just sit there and go, "How in the world do you write a character like this?" And you know, I I always hear authors saying that, "Oh, I wasn't expecting it to go in this direction." I'm like, "But aren't you writing the book?" But you know, I, it literally is every every writer is like, yeah, they just, you know, they start doing one thing, all of a sudden they're doing something else. And I go, that sounds so oh, impossible yeah. to, like, convey. No, my mother asked me the same question. Because in Broken Crayon, my incredibly smart tactician, my, it just, you know, he, he's like the epitome of tactically cool and, and you know, he's cold-hearted, but he just, he was the dumbest thing ever. And so... I am screaming at my computer screen. My mom says, what are you doing? Because she had dropped by a younger kid son. And so I'm trying to explain to her, this character has done the most ridiculous, stupid male thing. I don't get it. (laughs) My mom said, it's because he basically, it's one-on-one fight. He challenges a demon that he should not be able to kill and forbids any of his people from interfering. Hmm. Because he's angry. And so people are all sitting on their hands and doing this. And I couldn't believe it because he was so careful and he was so smart. And he and you know, he was the one pushing buttons. He was just, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? <laughs> so I was afraid for a long time that people would just read this and think, oh, I see he turned into an idiot. Mm-hmm. And nobody had that reaction at all. And two people, my alpha reader and my editor said, um, Michelle, that is almost the defining character scene. I said, but didn't you think, why are you being so stupid? And she said, no. I said, okay, give up. And somebody said, you just don't understand the whole alpha male thing. And I said, I guess not. She said, you obviously observed it. I mean, she said, it felt totally 100% in character. But it didn't feel in character to me. It's just what he did. I can't even say 
more than that. It's just what he did. And so I'll talk a little bit about the story flow because there is, when you're writing sometimes, not always, and it's hard to reach, you can sometimes hit a story vein or a story flow. And all of a sudden, you are, at least for me, racing to keep up. You're going to clean up a whole bunch of sentences after you finished because you are typing so quickly so that you can keep ahead of the story that is suddenly unfolding before you. It is the best thing ever. And I will tell you right now, it, you are not predicting it anymore. Mm-hmm. You are not saying, okay, now I'm going to do this, now I'm going to do this. You are just following the story from. Hmm. So during that, you there are things that are going to surprise you. There are things that are not completely predictable. There are things that are, that will happen while you're writing. And if every book was written like that, then writing would be just pure joy. But of course, it's not. You you will hit that. You will hit your stride, and then you'll fall off a cliff. It, it, every book has moments of flow and moments of struggle. And mm-hmm. at the end of it, you know, twenty years later, you can't remember which were which. Mm. So the craft is important. The the part that is very intellectual is important. But I think that if it were only that, I probably wouldn't write. Hmm. Okay. All right. So um, I want to talk about the uh, the newest novel uh, coming in your Chronicles of Atlanta series, Cast in Conflict, which comes out in six days. Um, can you give us a brief a brief overview of the series so far, and then what we can expect in this volume? Yes. Kaylin uh, is a officer of the Halls of Law, the Hawks Division. It is the investigative division. It is the only division in the halls of law that um, include brain, which are who are immortal, and uh, Lee and Tynes who are not human. They're kind of like Beauty and the Beast. What was his name? Ron, Ron Perlman's character. Mm. Um, and she herself grew up on the wrong side of the river, which is like the wrong side of the tracks, but amplified greatly because in the center of the city, they're a city that is not actually claimed and they're run by kind of feudal lords. They're necessary. They own towers that keep the worst of the shadows enclosed so they can't get out and destroy everything or destroy every world. Um, She has marks on her body that the immortals all recognize as marks of the chosen. She doesn't know how to use them, which frustrates everybody, including her. However, largely she tries to go about her job and frequently stumbles into unfortunate magical difficulties, which actually the Hawks do deal with up to a certain point. One of her uh, adventures outside of the city saddled her with uh, 12 housemates. And since she already has a dragon housemate, and the dragons and the brownie housemates have had three different interracial wars that leveled whole kingdoms, uh, there's a little bit of tension. And cast in conflict is the um, eventual outcome of that little bit of tension and everybody's need to try to find a way to move forward. It is. It's a. Uh, it was not quite what I thought it was going to be, but there's uh, a lot of unfortunate conflict between friends, between friends and the dragon, between dragon and the other dragons. There's um, a few things because they are trying to establish themselves in more permanent homes, in which they can be safe or in which they can fulfill what they consider their duties. And there's a clash between these two things. Okay. Um, so uh, I want to know how in the world <laughs> did you write? I mean, 
on top of this series, but how did you write 16 novels over the course of five years? I mean, I know, I know you, you wrote before, you know, the, the first one was published, no, 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 but no, no, the, the 16 novels were probably over the course of about 15 years. Okay. With the, I guess seven. So it's less than maybe 14 years. Okay. Um, but the very first one, they were being published pretty much like once a year. So. Oh, okay. And then there were other novels in the West novels. I tend to split my writing day between um, a cast novel or a cast related novel, in this case, the seven book, because that's the one I'm working on right now, mm -hmm. and a West novel. Because what I found is if I really push my brain to get out way more words than it's comfortable for me, the last chunk of words is much more of a struggle, but it kind of empties my brain. I sit down the next day and stare at the computer. And there was one weekend I wrote like 20,000 words. And then I just had nothing in my head for the next 20 days. And I thought, okay, pushing yourself, if it's the very end of the book, fine. Because it doesn't matter if your brain burns out. But you're not getting any farther if you're trying to hit these huge word goals and they just kind of empty the well. So I do, say, 1,500 words per book and try to work on two books at the same time. Wow. Because that actually does work for me. Interesting. Oh, I, I feel like it's just a struggle to write one. <laughs> on two things at the same time taught me is that it's not that I'm suffering from writer's block. It's that one of these books is not going well, mm -hmm. but the other one can be fine. Or I'm flinching. There is something I have to do here that I do not want to do. And so everything is slowing down in a kind of physical, emotional um, state of stress. I do not want to kill these people. I do not want to write this thing. Um, and of course I have to do it. So I can struggle for six hours to write 400 words and then I can write 1500 words in an hour because it's totally different emotional space, mm -hmm. totally different book. So then it's not actually me as a writer that very often if I keep bashing my head against something in my own books, it means that, that I've made a choice someplace that is not working. Mm. It, it, it implies that there's a structural difficulty. There is something behind what I'm working on now that is flawed. So then I have to go back and just look at everything again. Because when you do things somewhat subconsciously in, in this way, sometimes you will make a choice that is not the right choice. Or you'll make a choice and it's only when you're actually going over it thinking, why isn't this book working? You'll actually hit that spot and think, oh, of course it's not working because the consequences of that would be absolutely dreadful. Next. Hmm. And so there's that. Yeah. Interesting. Um, last question I got for you. What are uh, what are some books you read recently that you'd recommend? I actually really loved Aliette de Bodard's Fireheart Tiger. Mm. It is actually a novella. It's a Tor.com novella. And I thought it was actually brilliant for what it was doing. For what it was kind of addressing for expectations that stories often follow being kind of examined a little bit more realistically. Hmm. So I, I just, I was really, really impressed with that one. I really, really liked, and it's just come out, um, Witness for the Dead, Catherine Addison's. Mm. Um, it, it's not, it is kind of a sequel and it absolutely isn't a sequel. It, yeah. it is one of the characters. But I actually really liked it. Um, I love the Goblin Emperor. Goblin oh, I did too. Oh, it's so good. Because I read it. I read it the first time. I liked it. But I wanted to reread it. And so I started rereading it. And I realized the second time I loved it. All the parts that I would normally skip on a reread were not in the book. Hmm. None of them. So the pace of the first reading <laughs> was very different. Witness for the Dead is there, and I actually really liked it, but I felt it was like a bit, I don't know, 200 pages too short. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I, I it, want this, and I want this, and I want, this, <laughs> and I want to know what happens here, and I want to know what happens here. 
um, and he's a very different character in a very different situation. Right. So I'm kind of hoping that Chiaggi continues with that. Like, I, I couldn't see how she could write a direct sequel to The Goblin Emperor. No. I just, I, I can understand how event-wise there are things that would happen, but it chips away at, in, in some ways, what that book was for me. That's a comfort book for me as well. Uh, so Witness for the Dead is interesting. It's the same universe, and you're seeing things in it um, that were mentioned, but of course, Maya is not in the same place that there is. Mm -hmm. So it adds some, I don't know if people are waiting on that or what, but I think that there is something if you liked the first book. If you didn't like the first book, I I, I don't know what to say. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, uh, yeah, I, I love The Goblin Ember. I actually, I actually listened to it, um, I guess it's been about a month or so ago, and I was, uh, I'm, I'm about to go through Witness for the Dead, and, and I have seen where it, it has, you know, a little bit of a tone shift. It's a little bit slower paced, um, and it is a lot shorter. Um, it, it definitely looks like it could be set up for, you know, a, a mini series or something. But it is definitely a direct sequel that's not a direct sequel, <laughs> like you're saying. But yeah, I um, I, I agree, and I, and I haven't read Fireheart, um, but uh, I definitely, I definitely want to. I think. Uh, I ended up putting it, it was one of our blogs, um, I guess most anticipated reads for this year. Um, we just, we do a giant list every year and, uh, and, and, and I think we are on their Amazon page for that. So I'm like, well now I feel like I haven't read it yet. So I definitely need to, I definitely need to get on that. Any other, uh, any other big recommendations? I don't, I, my, I'm coming up almost blank, which is unusual for me. Cause I do, actually read i just hung over two seconds I, there was one other one i'm sure i have no brain it's just kind of don't laugh <laughs> bad things happen to people who mock Yeah, no, I, I think at the moment, I'm, you know, the minute we hang up, I'm going to actually come up with other things, but the other things are going to be probably a little bit older. Like I'm reading the the new Derek Kunskin, and he wrote the Quantum Magician. Yeah. And actually, I really like what I haven't finished it yet. Okay. I absolutely love it. If you haven't, if you didn't read the Quantum Magician, you really should. Okay. It, it's his first book. It's fabulous. It is smart. It is disturbing. Although interestingly enough, um, it, man found a certain segment really disturbing in a way that the woman, including me, kind of yeah, it's gross, but not surprising. Not it it. it it's like it wasn't necessarily unexpected for us. Mm. But my alphabet just said, did you, did you not find that disturbing? And I said, um, yes, but. And I, it, but I can't say more than that because I really, really, if you haven't read that one in science fiction, you really should read it. Okay. House of Sticks is, is a prequel, but you really, really should read Quantum Magician. I can almost guarantee that you will love it. Okay. Yeah, actually, uh, I've got that one on my list. I think I've had it on there for quite a while, um, so I'll definitely make sure to do that. Well, it's like the it's Ocean's Eleven in space. He he does this interesting thing with the world building and the subhumans. They're called subhumans because they're variants of humanity that have been engineered genetically, and they cannot breed without scientific intervention. Mm. So Homo Quantus is. Um, the quantum magician of the title, but he is a little bit of a renegade from his own crash, where most of the people who are like him are. Mm -hmm. And that is because they, they have been engineered to use all of the brain resources when asked questions. Hmm. But they can't do it for long without burning their brains out. 
and everybody else doesn't have a problem with this. And he does, because once he's on track to find an answer and he's just building these huge, complex, internal question engines, he won't stop. So you know this from the first chapter, I think, that he'd almost killed him. So he doesn't really want to die, <laughs> but he needs to do things with his brain and what he has come up with incredibly complicated con schemes, confidence games. Hmm. And it's, uh, it's, it is quite a ride, but the world is interesting and the situations are interesting. And it's just, you, it really is quite, um, I found it quite fast paced. Okay. And again, sort of Ocean's Eleven meets intergalactic, well, not intergalactic, yes, it's intergalactic, but um, space aircraft with really smart world women. I think, as I said, if you haven't read that one, you'll like it. But House of Sticks is the prequel, and that one just came out in hardcover and print. I think they had to delay it because of COVID printing issues, so the ebook came out first. Okay. Yeah, I think that one came out from Rebellion, if I'm not mistaken, or Solaris. Solaris was the um, first two. Okay. And I'm almost, but not quite sure for one for two seconds. Uh, that, that, that one is. I'm just checking the publisher. That's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, it's still Solaris. Good. Okay. okay. No, no, wait, no, no, you're definitely Solaris because the first are definitely Solaris. <laughs> awesome. Well, Michelle, um, thank you so much for coming on and, and chatting. Uh, it, it's been a pleasure getting to meet you and getting to know you a little bit more. Um, and uh, definitely everybody that's listening, check out uh, her Chronicles of Elantra uh, series and then also her Wolves of Elantra series that's also ongoing. Uh, Casting Conflict, the newest uh, entry into the Chronicles series, comes out on June 29th, so just in six days from this recording. Uh, and we're definitely looking forward to, to, to more things from you, Michelle. All right. Thank you very, very much for having me. Absolutely. Enjoy the rest of your week. Mm -hmm. You too. Thanks. Thank you.